is time to launch a new war against the evil of lies, deceit, and darkness and go all out to win the victory of truth and transparency and light. Sure, go ahead. Believe everything you see on television, everything you read in the newspaper. Go ahead. Get your history out of the Encyclopedia Britannica. Yeah, that's right. Oswald killed Kennedy. Yeah, sure he did. Man, you are living in Disneyland. 1,500 years ago, everybody knew the Earth was the center of the universe. 500 years ago, everybody knew the Earth was flat. And 15 minutes ago, you knew that people were alone on this planet. Imagine what you know. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome, friends, my extended radio family. Good to have you aboard. I hope you'll be with me for the duration. Interesting program for you tonight, uh, but uh, first, just some uh, housekeeping uh, notes. First, uh, let me once again, in case I neglected to do this last week, because... uh, it was a very busy show last week as well. I want to again um, uh, formally welcome aboard two new affiliates to the Conspiracy Show. WTSL AM 1400 out of Hanover, New Hampshire, and WTSV AM 1230, Claremont, New Hampshire. And uh, both of those uh, stations, I believe, sort of serving the uh, the greater uh, metro area. Burlington, Vermont is included in that uh, market as well. Hanover, New Hampshire, Claremont, New Hampshire. Uh, welcome. Very, very pleased to have you aboard. Hope you enjoy the program and look forward to hearing uh, from the good folks in the Granite State. Now, last week, of course, everyone, uh, the world was meteor crazy, and I received an interesting email from our media scientist friend, Nelson Thal, just a couple of days ago. Nelson is a uh, very scholarly man, and he tells me he's been pointing out some very interesting things about the meteorite that, uh, uh, alleged meteorite, some are saying, that crashed in Russia in a remote region uh, in the Ural Mountains. And now, Nelson sent me this email saying that it's quite interesting. He studies the Bible, uh, Christian devout Christian, and he says that the word Ural, in Hebrew, it means God illumines, or God illuminates, or something to that extent. Uh, and he was, uh, Nelson was pointing out that, uh, you know, when this meteorite came crashing down, I mean, it was brighter than the sun. And uh, so Nelson and others, of course, have pointed out that perhaps this is some sort of message from the Almighty. So there you go, Interesting. We'll uh, keep on top of that. Uh, we do have a couple of meteorite stories up on the website, and you can uh, follow those at richardserrett.com and say hello on Twitter. Last week, it was the first in what will be a series of programs uh, dedicated to the JFK assassination. Tonight is part two. After tonight, we'll take a break, and then in, in a couple of months, we'll pick it up again with parts three and four, and we'll continue this. There is so much material out there, and you may have thought that you know everything there is to know, if you've heard everything there is to know about uh, JFK and the JFK assassination, but not true. Twenty years ago, James Eugenio released a book. Here we are 20 years later. It's heavily revised. It's called a second edition, but it's, it's almost a total rewrite because in the last 20 years, so much information has come out, documents and so forth, that essentially... Destiny Betrayed, JFK, Cuba, and the Garrison Case is a whole new book, and we'll tell you how to get a a copy of it. Last week, we sort of set the table and talked about the state of the world, the geopolitical milieu, if you will, uh, that JFK found himself in when he came to office. And uh, that includes, of course, 
the emergence of the United States as a superpower during the Cold War, the, the rise of the U.S. national security state under the CIA and their covert operations around the world, and of course, the Bay of Pigs, the botched Bay of Pigs fiasco, in which the CIA and some Cuban expats tried to overthrow Castro, and eventually Kennedy's rapprochement with Castro. So that's sort of where we left things off last week. So tonight, we begin part two with James DiEugenio, co-founder of two organizations, the Citizens for Truth about the Kennedy assassination and the Coalition on Political Assassinations. He was co-author and editor of The Assassinations, a book on the deaths of JFK, MLK, Robert Kennedy, and Malcolm X. And, of course, we just observed, uh, I believe it was the 47th anniversary of Malcolm X's murder. He's also the author, as I say, of this recently published second edition of Destiny Betrayed, JFK, Cuba, and the Garrison Case. James DiEugenio, welcome once again. How are you? Okay, fine. I wanted to pick it up tonight and, and concentrate now on, on Oswald. And um, I think before, though, we talk about New Orleans and his time spent there. I mean, he was born there, of course, but he returned there, I guess, about the spring of 1963. Uh, let's just give people a sense of, of who he was. Uh, where he came from and, and so forth, if we could. And as I mentioned, born in New Orleans. Can we pick it up maybe when, when he, uh, when he, um, signs on, uh, in the military and, and I guess does his basic training in San Diego and, and so forth? All right. Oswald, he's in Dallas when he goes ahead and he kind of sneaks into the Marine Corps. But right at the start, let me add something. If you've read my book, Sounds like you certainly have. Yes, yes. All right. What's really odd about this is that at around the same time that he's going to the Marine Corps, he tries to sell a classmate named Richard Garrett on the philosophy of communism, for which Richard reported Oswald to the principal. The second interesting point is that on October 3rd, Oswald wrote a letter to the Socialist Party of America. And he said he was very interested in our youth league and like information on a branch in his region so he could join. And he signed a letter with, I'm a Marxist. I've been studying socialist principles for well over 15 months. I'm very interested in your organization. Now, what is so odd about this is that guys joining the Marine Corps usually aren't Marxists. Okay? Especially at the <laughs> height of the Cold War. Socialist <laughs> organizations. They don't try and sell their classmates on communism, all right, because, of course, the Marine Corps is usually considered the uh, the shock troops of any kind of attack that the United States military makes on another country. All right? Sure. They're usually the first to go into action. So here we have this very hard-to-believe spectacle of this young man, right, um, going into the Marine Corps and writing letters to the Socialist Party of America. All right, now, Oswald does go into the Marine Corps. In the time in the Marine Corps, he's in three places. He's in the southeast quadrant of the United States, in places like Mississippi and Florida. He's also stationed in California, and another place is the Far East. And when he's in the southeast quadrant, what he's doing is getting training for his specialty which is going to be uh, radar operation. But then he gets stationed in El Toro, California, and this is a step for him to go to Atsuki, right. Japan. Right. Now, what's so odd about Atsuki 
is that it's a CIA station. And out of that Sugi flew the U-2, which had just become operational. Right, right. Which, of course, was the high-altitude spy plane that the United States invested so much money in and in which it was supposed to get unbelievably clear pictures from 30,000 feet up, you know, with these terrific Polaroid lenses. And you couldn't send up a fighter to intercept it because it was flying at such a high no, altitude and too fast. not at the time they first went up. Right. No, no. What's also odd is that Oswald seems to follow the U-2 around in the Far East. Wherever the U-2 goes, Oswald and his detail goes. He was called Detachment C, a special technical unit that seems to be part of the U-2 program. Once Oswald goes into the service, it really does not seem that he's being groomed for the infantry because, as many authors have revealed, including myself, Oswald was not, well, to put it kindly, he was not a very good shot. And, in fact, he was kind of a joke when he went through basic training. The people kind of made fun of his terrible shooting ability. After he returns from the Far East, he comes back to Santa Ana. He takes part in a radar operation squadron nine. But now something very, very odd begins to happen. To me, and I think to most people, it's not explainable. He begins to start studying the Russian language. He subscribes to Pravda, you know, the big kind of New York Times of Russia at the time. You know, he starts to play Russian records. And this gets to be, you know, so bizarre that his mates start calling him Oswaldovich, you know. <laughs> now, as other people observed later, he actually takes a Russian test. As Jim Garrison so notably noted, you know, the Warren Commission tried to excuse this as saying that he only got half the questions right, you know, which, as Garrison said, kind of begs the question that, most people wouldn't have got any questions right. Right, right. right. But later on, about 10 months later, he met a woman named Rosalind Quinn, who was actually being tutored in Russian because she was actually going to join the State Department. And one of his friends in the Marines set up this meeting so they could practice their Russian with each other. Well, Rosalind Quinn, after the meeting, said, that guy speaks as well in Russian as I do, and I was privately tutored for a year. Oh, my. Listen, James, we'll take a time out. We'll come back, and we'll continue to talk about Lee Harvey Oswald, Destiny Betrayed, JFK Cuba, and the Garrison Case by James D. Eugenio right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. need for increased security will be seized upon by those anxious to expand its meaning to the very limits of official censorship and concealment. That I do not intend to permit to the extent that it's in my control. Where there's smoke, 
There's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. James Eugenio is with us. Destiny Betrayed, JFK Cuba and the Garrison Case, part two of our ongoing series, JFK uh, Connecting the Dots. Tonight we're uh, uh, examining the life of Lee Harvey Oswald. Now, uh, you were talking about his incredible proficiency with the Russian language, but let me just back up for a second and ask you this, because, you know, if you look at his military record, uh, you know, before he he lands in uh, at Atsugi, which you've pointed out is a CIA base, uh, he's got. Uh, you know, he ends up shooting himself in the arm. Uh, uh, at one point, I believe he has a some sort of a breakdown. Um, he assaults supposedly he assaults a superior. He's sentenced to the brig. I'm I'm, I'm wondering um, uh, whether these were sort of cover stories, and and to what extent? I mean. What kind of a security clearance did Oswald have when he was uh, attached to the first Marine aircraft wing? Well, that's that's been under a long time of debate, okay, because the CIA has never wanted to admit that Oswald had a secret clearance, all right? But over time, it's kind of been, you know, this has been chipped away at, and certain people who worked with Oswald, okay, like his commanding officer Donovan in the radar thing said he did have a clearance, okay? You know, he did have a clearance to look at some of these top secret documents. And most people now believe that this was information on the U-2, okay, which is very interesting because when we get to Russia, we'll see why it's so interesting. All right, when we get to Oswald's defection to Russia, we'll see why that's interesting. All right. Well, were they were they trying to to? I mean, again, going back to the uh, these run-ins he had, you know, assaulting his officer, uh, a superior officer. Well, it wasn't really an assault. He, I think, he poured a drink on the guy, right? Okay, but then there was in, then then I believe when he, when he was stationed in the Philippines for a short while, he had a, supposedly a complete you know breakdown and was sent back to Japan. Were these cover stories, or was was Oswald troubled? Well, there does seem to be a kind of mystery about where Oswald was for a certain period of time, because I've personally met someone who went to Santa Ana to do training in firearms, and when he went there, he said, why don't you go ahead and sleep here tonight? This is this Oswald guy who never seems to be here. Okay? And what many people believe is that these disappearances of Oswald were essentially kind of excuses for him to go ahead and get his training in the Russian language. Because when the Warren Commission convenes, they discover that they had a document that said Oswald had been at the Monterey School of Languages, which is um, in the middle of California, right, and is the the place to go in the military if you want to acquire mastery of another language. Because, look, anybody who knows anything about languages knows that, A, Russian is one of the most difficult languages there is to learn, all right? And number two, you can't really do it 
as fast as Oswald did it with just reading newspapers and listening to records. You have to have directed instruction to do it. So this is what many people believe was where, when Oswald was not around, this is where he most likely was acquiring this Russian language. And, of course, they've right. already created the cover story of why you know, he's going to defect because at a very early, you know, uh, years earlier, he's already talking about you know, uh, being a Marxist and, and uh, right. embracing socialism. So, I mean, obviously, if that, was, that was set up years in advance. Well, yeah, see, if, um, you wanted to start at the action when he goes in the Marine Corps. In my book, I try and explain that, in my opinion, the way that this started was with, through his association with David Ferry in the Civil Air Patrol in 1955. That's Ferry bad. had already indoctrinated several of his cap cadets into the military. And I, this is what I think he did with Oswald. All right? Okay, so let's... Now, let's begin to wind this down, because there's two very interesting events that not too many people had written about, okay? Um, and I think they're very important, as Oswald now begins to decide to leave the Marine Corps and go to the Soviet Union. Number one is his application for the Albert, the so-called Albert Schweitzer College. In Switzerland, yeah. Right, which is... If you remember from the book, this is a very inexplicable interlude that no one has ever really explored until we had this documentation declassified by the ARB. All right, because when, after Kennedy's assassination, when the Warren Commission and the FBI tried to find Albert Schweitzer College, which Oswald had sent away, you know, um, for information from, and after he dis, after Oswald went to Russia, his mother also wrote a letter to Hoover saying, "I haven't heard from my son in weeks. The last time I, he wrote me, he said he was going to go to this college, Albert Schweitzer College." Well, how obscure was Albert Schweitzer College? First of all, the FBI didn't know where it was. Okay. Second of all, the FBI attachment in France didn't know where it was. Hmm. So then they had to refer it to the Swiss police, and guess what? They didn't know where it was, <laughs> even though it was in Switzerland. Right, right. Okay? It took them something like seven days to find Albert Schweitzer College. But yet, that leaves the question... How the heck did Oswald know about it in California? Exactly. Exactly. You know? How on earth did he know about this college? Which, by the way, he never went to. Now, I go into the book about some very, very interesting stuff about Albert Schweitzer College because it very much resembles, if you read this, if you read what I wrote about it, it very much resembles some kind of CIA cover operation. Because it doesn't come off to anybody who reads about it as a legitimate college. Plus, it shut down after Kennedy's assassination. Interesting. Right. Yes, yes. All right. Now, the other thing is Oswald's early leave from the Marine Corps. Oswald only had, I think, about something like eight months to go before his enlistment period was up. But... 
he mysteriously takes a hardship discharge. Yeah, his mother was injured, supposedly. His mother was injured, right? <laughs> well, do you, do you remember what the injury was? Uh, no, I can't... Um, I mean... a, a candy jar dropped on her foot. Oh. <laughs> Okay. I, wait a second. I think it might have been her nose. I, 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 I did. I should get this right. I think it might have been her nose. All right. And so, therefore, this event went ahead and ticked off a series of applications to the Red Cross, in which Oswald went ahead and was dismissed early from the Marine Corps. The House Select Committee on Assassinations did some research on previous hardship discharges. You know, because you had to have an application. It had to be reviewed by a board, etc. They had to make sure you just weren't making something up because you just wanted to get out of the Marine Corps. Yeah, he got his in like two weeks. He got, the average length of time it took to get a hardship discharge was three to six months. Yeah. Okay. Well, Oswald's took 11 days. That's right. August, Oswald's took yeah. 11 days. August 1759. Yeah. <laughs> right? So he now gets out early, all right? And what does he do? Does he go back and tend his mother? Well, he was only back in Fort Worth or something like at his mom's for like a day and a half, okay? He actually took one day off to visit his mother, or his brother, who did not was not living with his mother, all right? So clearly, it seems to most people that this hardship discharge was designed to get Oswald out of the service early because he was never meant to be an infantry guy. He was always meant to be part of what, as we're going to see, this fake defector program. Yeah, he gets okay. out and immediately applies for a passport, and he's he, and he and now he's busying himself so that he can get over to Russia. Right. And so he goes ahead, he goes down to New Orleans, all right? He then gets on this ship called the Marion Likes, all right, uh, a freighter. He goes over to um, Southampton, okay, in England, all right, and the, from there he went, he goes ahead to Helsinki. Now, if you remember what I wrote in the book, there's a really interesting thing that help, happens, well, there's more than one, that help, happens to him in Helsinki, Finland, all right? Here's this guy who's supposed to have something like $203 in his bank account. Yeah, he moves to the Klaus Kirky Hotel. <laughs> <laughs> he got $23 in his bank account. And where did he check into? He checks into first the Hotel Tony. Right, right. Which I, I know a guy who's been there. Yeah, it's pretty this Tony. Is the kind of hotel that if Donald Trump was going to Helsinki, he would stay there. Yeah. It's like a five star hotel. It shouldn't be the Tony, it should be the Tony Hotel. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the Savoy in London. All right? So here's this impoverished Marine going into this five-star hotel with granite floors, glass walls, an observation tower. It used to have its own newspaper. All right? Now, somebody must have told them, uh, Lee, uh, let's, uh, let's cover this up a little bit. Why don't you get out of that place? So what does he do? He goes to the, the Klaus Kirky Hotel, which is about three blocks away which, if not quite a five-star, is probably a four-star. Yeah, still pretty nice. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So here's the question. Here's a guy who should be staying at the Express Holiday Inn, 
and he's, he's staying at the two best hotels in Helsinki. All right? Why? How? All right? So then he gets a visa into the Soviet Union in something like a couple of days, all right? And now he's finally into Russia, which is where it looks like he's always wanted to be, okay? And there's been a series, as I describe in the book, there's been a series of American so-called defectors who very oddly had gone, there hadn't been any in something like 15 years. Well, at the time Oswald goes over He's like the third or fourth in like the last 18 months, okay? So clearly what's happening is that the United States is sending over, you know, these men who have been from the military who have been trained to act as disaffected people, you know, and then go to Russia as undercover spies, all right? Now, the Russians, of course, don't believe this, you know. They don't believe that Oswald is a, is a true communist, and I explain in the book. There was all kinds of surveillance on Oswald, you know, both human intelligence and uh, electronic surveillance, you know, and also from some of his speeches that he gave, you know, and even the, the diplomat at the, at the American embassy, Richard Snyder, is obviously knows that Oswald is not a real defector because he makes sure that he doesn't sign a certain document so that he will not use, lose his American citizenship. All right. So Oswald then is stored up at this Metropole Hotel, and it takes the KGB a few days to figure out what they're going to do with him. And they send him to Minsk, about 400 miles, I think, eastward, no, westward of Moscow. And he works in this radio factory. All right. And he meets some people there, the KGB guy in Minsk has a human net around him, okay, because they strongly suspect he's some kind of intelligence agent. All right, and they also have electronic surveillance on him because he actually, if you remember the story in the book, his friend Ernst Titovitz says they fished out some kind of recording device out of his sink one day. Right, right. All right. He then meets Marina Oswald, okay? He then meets Marina Oswald at this dance. And Marina Oswald unbelievably, had also met Webster, who was another defector, okay, in Russia. Okay, let's just, uh, let me jump in there, James. Let me just jump, let me jump in. We'll take a time out. We'll come back and we'll uh, continue with Oswald uh, in Russia as we discuss JFK. Destiny betrayed JFK Cuba and the Garrison case. James D. Eugenio right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Agency, mob, Cubans. That's it, follow the Cubans. Check them out. Here, Miami, Dallas. Check out a guy named Mario Del Valle. He used to be my paymaster when I flew missions into Cuba. Somewhere in Miami, you're on the right track. Hey, hey, don't be writing this down. I ain't cooperating here with no one. What's going on here? There's a death warrant for me. Don't you get it? Damn. Wait a minute. You ain't, you ain't bugged, are you? You ain't someone. Bitch, Lou. 
Dave, I always play square, no bugs. Corporations, governments, and sometimes entire civilizations, what goes up must come down. And it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Part two of our JFK Connecting the Dots with James DiEugenio. Destiny Betrayed, JFK Cuba, and the Garrison Case. We're talking about Oswald in Russia, and of course he wasn't uh, the only uh, uh, American defector, so-called, over there with CIA connections. You mentioned Robert E. Webster, who uh, was working over there, supposedly setting up some sort of a trade display for Rand Corporation, which kind of has an an interesting connection with the CIA. Both of the, I think, the, the, the CEO of Rand... Uh, they served in the OSS, which was the forerunner of the CIA. Right. right. And uh, so uh, Oswald uh, and Webster knew each other. Mar- uh, Marina had met. Uh, Mar- well, Oswald and Webster knew of each other. Ah, okay. I don't think they actually knew each other. But 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 Marina, Marina had met. Yeah. Actually knew both of them. But the thing is, and, w- she, and she confused them, by the way, ah. when she left. She confused okay. them. She said she met Oswald at some science fair, which is. That's where she met Webster. Right, right. Okay. Now, when, but now, the interesting thing about Webster... Russia, and we're getting ready to do that now. Yeah, yes. There's one thing we can't ignore. When Oswald went to the Soviet Union, the information comes back to the FBI, comes back to the United States Navy, and is filed very cleanly and logically almost within 24 hours of them getting the information. But... When it comes to the CIA, it goes into what John Newman, a military intelligence analyst, has written, is a black hole. For about 30 days, this information about Oswald is lost at the CIA. There's no tracing on where it's going or why. Then when it finally does get filed, okay, it gets filed in the wrong place, the Office of Security. All right, which is one of the James Angleton's domains, the counterintelligence chief. All right, and also, if you can believe it, something even to me even more startling happens. The CIA does not open up a 201 file on Oswald. Now, what does that mean? The 201 file is the most common file the CIA has on. Almost, well, not almost everybody, but most of the people that opens up files, they open up a 201 file, which is just an, an information file on people who might be of interest to them. Here you have a defector leaving the Marine Corps early, saying he's going to Albert Schweitzer College, which he doesn't go to, all right? Then going to Helsinki, staying at this Hotel Tourney, staying at the Kirky, and then crossing over into Russia. And this is not important enough for the CIA to open up a 201 file. Interesting, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry. I don't believe it. But he does make the mail intercept program. In other words, the CIA goes ahead and starts breaking into his mail. Now, the 201 files are in tens of thousands of people. The mail intercept program was only something like 300 people. So why is Oswald not important enough to get a 201 file, but he is important enough to get his mail intercepted? See, this is something the CIA has never explained. All right, so then Oswald then 
him marry in, I think, something like, talk about a whirlwind romance. I think it, the whole thing took about five weeks from when they first met. All right? And then Oswald is granted permission to leave Russia with this Soviet national who has ties to the Communist Party and whose uncle, who is acting more or less as a stepfather, is part of the equivalent of the Soviet Union's FBI. Again, very, very odd, because when the Warren Commission was investigating this, they said this was very, very unusual. It sometimes took a year for a Soviet, a Soviet national to meet their spouse outside the country, okay, to get, to get through customs, all right? But here it happened in just a matter of months. You know? Yeah, there's definitely a, 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 a pattern here with Oswald. Uh, right. let me, let He's me just... a very unusual person. Then he comes back to the United States. The CIA always denied that they debriefed him, but now we have some pretty good evidence that he was probably debriefed in Amsterdam on the way back. All right. And then, he, of course, he comes back to Texas, and who does he hook up with? This is the beginning of a very strange relationship between the supposed impoverished former Marine and his wife and the cosmopolitan, highfalutin, very cultured oil geologist named George de Show. Okay, well, i got to cut in here. We'll take a time out when we come back. We'll, uh, we'll talk about that, but I also want to just touch briefly on what happened in May of 1960. Uh, and uh, the U-2 being uh, uh, shot down, and if there's a connection there as well. Back with James DiEugenio as we discuss JFK here on The Conspiracy Show. Keeping an eye on the New World Order, this is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740. Welcome back. This is part two of our uh, series on JFK Connecting the Dots. Part two of how many? I don't know. As many as it takes, really, uh, because the information in Destiny Betrayed, JFK Cuba and the Garrison case, much of it not heard anywhere else. Uh, not to be seen anywhere else. And uh, James DiEugenio has done a wonderful job uh, compiling this. And uh, tonight we're focusing on Oswald, and we'll probably uh, do several more episodes uh, focusing on Oswald. But let, let me just back up. Before he defects and is in, or, or comes back, rather, to the United States, and he's in Russia, in May of 1960, of course, the U-2, a flight which is piloted by Francis Gary Powers, is shot down over the over Russia, uh, and it's interesting because, of course, that coincides with the time when Oswald was there. And as you had pointed out earlier, uh, he was, uh, you know, moving around in his, in, during his career with the Marines, sort of seemingly following the U-2. Uh, so what is the connection then, James, between Francis Gary Powers being shot down in the U-2 in Russia while Oswald is there? Well, Powers actually thought that... Oswald was part of him being shot down. 
Because when Oswald came over, he said, and he said this to the American embassy, which, of course, the Soviets had, had surveillance listening devices in, that I have some very secret information that I would like to convey. Now, the only secret information Oswald had, of course, was about the U-2. Anything that could be of value to the Soviet Union. So many people thought that he was dangling this information for the Russians to take him up on. All right? But there's no real evidence that he actually did this. But when Donovan, his commanding officer, testified before the Warren Commission, when he came out, he said, I wanted to start telling them about what Oswald knew about the U-2, but they never asked me any questions. And this is really one of the most puzzling things about this whole – because there isn't any evidence that the CIA at the time did what they call a damage control assessment after the U-2 was shot down. In other words, how did the Russians shoot it down? Did Oswald give them the information? There was nothing like that done. There was only a very mild kind of investigation at the time of the Warren Commission, which most of Oswald's buddies thought – was a kind of CYA operation. In other words, talk to a couple of people and just say, well, see, we did investigate it, whether or not it could have been Oswald. And, of course, right. the result of that, the, the embarrassment, of course, when, when Eisenhower had to admit it was a spy, a U.S. spy plane, was it scuttled uh, a meeting, a summit meeting, between Eisenhower and Khrushchev, which could have led to some uh, easing or, or thawing in the Cold War. Yeah, see, there's no doubt about that, because... Um, there's a big debate about whether or not there was supposed to be a hiatus about U-2 flights when Eisenhower was leading up to this big summit meeting in Paris because Eisenhower really did have some strong ambitions to get something accomplished at this summit meeting, all right? Well, needless to say, when the news comes in that the U-2 shot down, this more or less scuttles the summit meeting. Khrushchev has a lot of leverage now over in Eisenhower, and he wants Eisenhower to make an announcement about who authorized this U-2 shoot-down and why. You know, like, like well, it's not the shoot-down, but the actual flight. You know, and why did they do it? Well, Eisenhower wasn't going to do that. So Khrushchev got all huffy and puffy, and he left. All right? And leaves Eisenhower high and dry. Now... Some people believe that it might have been this incident that caused Eisenhower to make his famous military-industrial complex speech. Exactly. You know what I'm talking about, right? Of course. I mean, we play it on the show all the time. Yeah. I mean, if I'm a me- if I'm you know General Electric or or one of these defense contractors, I'm clapping furiously now that that the Cold War summit has been called off because that's not going to be good for business. Right. And so a lot of people believe that it might have been this incident that caused him to make that speech, okay, warning about the impending might of the military-industrial state. It's a very, very interesting theory. Let's put it this way. I think it's a very – and one of the most intriguing things that there is to know about Oswald, you know, as he's about to leave the Soviet Union. So is it possible then, James, uh, that that was the reason – that was the sole reason 
that Oswald was first set up to look like a, uh, a, a socialist, a communist, a Marxist, whatever you want to call him. Uh, and that was the reason that his defection to Russia, that the, the path seemed to be cleared to get him over there to learn Russian. Uh, he's, he's equipped with all this knowledge, secret knowledge about the U-2. That was the raison d'etre for getting him into the, into the Soviet Union. Well, it, it might have been a very important part of it because another important part of this story is that the U-2 was beginning to be phased out at the time Oswald leaves the Soviet Union. They were already planning on a much faster plane, the SR-71. It was actually on the books. All right, so they might have thought about it this way. Well, let's go ahead and give the secret away because we've got this other plane coming in, and we'll have a chance to scuttle Eisenhower's, you know, dream of détente of establishing détente, okay, in the '60s. So that's so it's a possibility, you know. See, Oswald is such a complex character, you know, that it's very hard to figure out definitively who the guy is and why he's doing these things. And by the way, we haven't even gotten to New Orleans yet. No, no. We, I mean, the kind of the stuff the guy does there is, you know, I mean, I mean, talk about bizarre. That's that's going to be part three. We, uh, but I. Oh, okay, we're gonna we're gonna delay that to part three. Absolutely, okay. yes. We'll uh, okay. listen. We're gonna we're gonna uh, take this uh, series. We're gonna talk about George Demornschild. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about Demornschild. Demornschild, uh, and uh, now, yeah, he, as you say, here is this very wealthy uh, oil guy uh, who suddenly befriends. Marina and and um, Oswald and introduces them to members of the Russian community, but why? What, they had nothing in common, right? It's one of the more puzzling relationships that, um, if you study Oswald's life, it's really kind of not explainable because the Morinchild's family comes from Russia. They had very strong interests in the Nobel oil fields, okay, in in Russia, all right, and he was part of the white Russian community. Yeah, they Which they wanted to they overthrow the communist dictatorship, of course, and bring back the czar. Yeah. So what the heck is he doing, associating with this supposed communist? Later on, before he died, De Morinchild revealed that, left to his own devices, he would have never befriended Oswald. You know, he was told to uh, meet Oswald through his CIA uh, liaison in Dallas, a guy named J. Walton Moore, all right? And he, they, they become rather close friends for several months. They talk, they eat, they spend time with each other's families. Uh, uh, De introduces him to the rest of the white Russian community, who they become, he becomes quite close with. And ultimately, what I believe De Morinchild's mission was, he introduces them to Ruth and Michael Payne. And then... As the Morinchild begins to leave in the spring of 1963, Ruth and Michael Payne essentially fill the vacuum, and they become the best friends of Lee and Marina Oswald. And these are uh, uh, Michael Payne is an executive with Bell Helicopter. Right. He's he's a uh, he has a, a very high security clearance at Bell Helicopter in Dallas Fort Worth, which leaves the question. What was he doing with the wife of a communist staying in his house? Okay. <laughs> Which is what's going to happen, right? And, okay. and, 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 when, and who's Michael Payne's boss? Comes this... back from New Orleans. Ruth Payne has her living with them in their house. And this guy's got a top security clearance 
at Bell Helicopter with the wife of a communist, and the communists actually staying there on weekends. And last week we started we started the show talking about how the OSS recruited some top Nazis. Uh, you know, we talked about Reinhard Galen, but another one comes over and ends up running Bell Helicopter and is, I guess, Michael Payne's boss, right? Walter Dornberger. Yeah. Right. That's Operation Paperclip. And Dornberger is a big wheel at Bell Helicopter. At, 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 by the way, at, at around this time, you know. So it's, it's very, very interesting, these associations, when you begin to examine them. And in, when we talk about Ruth and Michael Payne, we will see that they go way back in time and space to the Boston Brahmin families who essentially founded this country. Yeah, the Blue Bloods of America. Right, the Cabots and the Forbes family, you know, from, you know, that go way back. You're talking three centuries. Right, right. Okay. And this was covered up so beautifully by the Warren Commission that who Ruth and Michael Payne really were that it's, it was masterful how they did it. You would never get it from just looking in the Warren Report. You had to do some really serious research. I mean, at the time of the assassination, Michael Payne is on a trust fund from the Cabot family, okay? Mm. That's, he's living largely off two trust funds from the Cabot and the Forbes family. We're talking about the unelected oligarchs uh, who, who run America. Right. These people actually looked down on the Kennedys. Because the Kennedys were like nouveau rich. Right. Okay, whereas they had their money from way, way back, you know, two, three hundred years ago, you know, and they controlled, they were in on all of these, you know, they worked for the State Department, they were in the Council on Foreign Relations, you know, and they, they really essentially, you know, kind of were behind the scenes power of running America. They were the okay. industrial, the military industrial complex. Right. And Michael and Ruth Payne, if you read my book, and this is one of the parts of the book that I'm very proud of, were disguised as these, this Quaker Good Samaritan couple. But as we begin to explore what they're doing, they really appear to be extensions of this Eastern establishment in Texas. And that's what they appear to be doing there. Which is interesting as well, because the Bush family, and we'll get into this uh, as, as this series unfolds, the Bush family, Eastern establishment, transplanted right. in Texas as well. Right. You can, you can say that that's another example of this. Yeah. Listen, we're going you know, to leave it... From back east, you know, then you know, they go to Texas, and George H.W. Bush becomes a big wheel in dresser industries. Okay, we're going to yeah. leave it there, uh, uh, James, and we'll reconvene maybe in a month, and we'll pick it up with part three, and we'll just keep going. We'll keep going. Okay. Destiny Betrayed, JFK Cuba and the Garrison Case. James, thank you for this. Talk soon. Okay, good night. Bye-bye. The Conspiracy Show, and you can follow this program through the website as well, www.richardserrett.com. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. We decided long ago that the dangers of excessive and unwarranted concealment of pertinent facts far outweighed the dangers which are cited to justify it. Even today, there is little value in opposing the threat of a closed society by imitating its arbitrary restrictions. Even today, there is little value in ensuring the survival of our nation if our traditions do not survive with it. 
And there is very grave danger that an announced need for increased security will be seized upon by those anxious to expand its meaning to the very limits of official censorship and concealment.